The kiwi plays a uniquely symbolic role in the national identity. It's a fruit. It's the currency. It's even how many New Zealanders describe themselves. Against the odds, the eccentric burrower is a survivor from another time. Yet its call is slowly but surely getting fainter. Before the arrival of humans in Aotearoa, there would have been millions of kiwi. New Zealand's geographic isolation led to the evolution of the most mammalian bird on the planet, with external nostrils at the end of its long bill, bone marrow, large ear openings, and loose hair-like feathers. But man brought fire and felled forests, destroying habitat and unleashing a fatal combination of cats, dogs, ferrets, stoats, and rats on the unsuspecting kiwi. Now millions of dollars are being spent to try to put right these wrongs by conservationists working at national, regional, and community levels. Tansy Bliss is a ranger working at the Department of Conservation's Fakatani Field Centre as the area's Kiwi Project Manager. One of her success stories is the Ohope Scenic Reserve, where a small pocket of North Island brown kiwi are thriving, despite living so close to a large town. And breeding just meters from the main coast road. This track that we're going up now takes us right into the middle of the Kiwi territory. We've actually got birds just, uh, yeah, living in these steep valleys, just as we walk up through here. And it's a, an area where lots of people come with their kids, come for a stroll, and uh, yeah, so very, very accessible. Right. So with with the monitoring, uh, the gear you're carrying there, and, and what we're off to. Go and have a listen to now. Perhaps you'd explain that. Yeah, the, each of the birds are fitted with uh, a radio transmitter, and that allows us to track them. And we put these transmitters on the adult males because they're the ones who actually incubate the kiwi eggs. Right. And if his activity profile goes way down, um, that's because he's sitting on eggs in the wild.、Um, Kiwi eggs would hatch at about 75 to 80 days, and if we're running the Operation Nest Egg program, we want to take them at around six, between 50 and 60 days. Why is that?、Um, so that so that they haven't hatched into chicks, which will then get eaten by predators, and also so that they've had time to develop. They transport better when they're a little bit older,、um, rather than when they're very fresh and very delicate. Since 1994, the Operation Nest Egg project, supported by the Bank of New Zealand's Save the Kiwi Trust, has artificially incubated kiwi eggs and raised chicks in captivity until they weigh one kilogram. They are then able to fend off stoats and can be released back into the wild in their home area. Without human intervention, only half of all kiwi eggs would hatch in the wild naturally. 95% of the chicks would then be killed by a predator. Only one to two percent would reach adulthood, whereas twenty percent survival is needed just to sustain population numbers, which continue to dwindle. But Operation Nest Egg, or ONE, has turned that one percent survival rate into seventy percent, thanks to the close monitoring of incubating birds and overnight raids on their burrows by helpful humans instead of preying predators. So we've、uh, we've arrived. On site, and, and what what are you doing now? 
Yeah, well, we've just arrived at the spot where I can check one of the nesting males, and his name is Taho, and, um, and he's actually produced over 20 chicks for us, and he's sitting at the moment, and he's got one of those special nesting transmitters on. So what I need to do is I just need to check that he's still in position, and the transmitter will tell me that he's still sitting and how many days. So I've just, um, his transmitter is number 32, so I've just plugged that into my um, TR4, or my receiver, and... Um, put up my aerial. It's like a handheld TV aerial. That's right, bright orange, this one is. And um, just turn this on, there'll be a bit of static. And then you can just hear that, that beep. Now that beep's coming out at 48 beeps per minute. And that tells us that he's in incubating mode. And every two minutes there'll be a readout which will tell me um, how long he's been sitting. So we'll just have to wait patiently for that because I don't know at what point of the cycle it is. And I won't know when it's coming. No. We'll just, there'll be a pause and then... Now. Seven. And three. So I'll just turn it goes back. So that's, that's giving me a readout of 7 and 3, and the way it works is that you take 2 off each number, which gives me 5 and a 1, so that means he's been sitting for 51 days. So this week we're collecting the eggs. Well, yep, um, probably on Sunday night we'll be collecting the eggs from this bird. It's just after 7am, and I'm parked at the junction of State Highways 30 and 33 in Tenai, close to Rotorua Airport, after what's a scenic drive from Tauranga through the Mangarewa Gorge and Hamurana north of the lake. The familiar smell of sulphur fills the air as truck and trailer units whoosh by this busy intersection where soon I'll be meeting Doc's Tansy Bliss. The peak of Mokoya Island is shrouded in mist and the sky filled with shades of grey. It's been a cool, wet and very overcast early spring morning drive. But hopefully Tansy's precious cargo of two eggs will prove to contain a pair of live chicks when we get to Kiwi Encounter at Rainbow Springs. And I'm looking forward to hearing about her night in the bush of a Hope Scenic Reserve near Fakatani. And here they are. Good morning, how are you? Hey, no. We're good, we're both shattered. <laughs> it's been a long night. Long, long night. I think it was uh, four o'clock when he decided to get off the nest, and um, we, we were very relieved that it was that he did get off. And um, yeah, so we haven't been to bed. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you guys normally gave up about two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, but this was a special occasion, and um, we thought, no, no, we're gonna we're gonna sit it out. And we, we did. We, so we had the tent, so we might as well uh, remain home and just waited. Mike Jones um, is our community relations ranger from um, Doc Frikatani and he was with me um, last night waiting for um, our bird Taho to get off the nest. So, what do you think yeah. you've got? Oh, two lovely eggs, absolutely. They were still beautifully warm um, when, um, when I put my hand into the nest and they're both alive, probably one's um, over 60 days old and probably one's just around 50 days old but looking very good indeed. And, and how are you transporting them? What's the method? Um, well, they're wrapped up um, underneath a, a, a down jacket um, in, and they're inside a chilli bin, which was warmed last night with a hot water bottle. And they're wrapped up in lovely um, possum merino socks 
and they're all padded and they were like I said they were warm when they went in and I bet you they'll be warm when they come out so we're just looking forward to getting to getting the eggs to queuing counter and finding out really what we've got and have you um, had any contact with, with Claire at all? Oh, last time yes. You... No, I've, I've just had a text from her to say, yep, we're waiting for you, all's ready. No, it's so funny because when you text me, I got in and I just... Then we were into the home straight, minutes from meeting Claire Travers, the husbandry manager for Kiwi Encounter at Rainbow Springs in Rotorua. OK, come on in. Thank you. Uh, need to take your shoes off here. With more than 100 eggs hatched there in each of the past two breeding seasons, it's the country's leading kiwi nursery and research centre, and uniquely among such facilities, it's open to the general public. One of the busiest times of year for Kiwi Encounter is September and October, when eggs are pouring in from 16 groups and community trusts carrying out the Operation Nest Egg Lifts. Dock rangers and volunteers travel overnight to Rotorua with their kiwi eggs from as far afield as Taranaki. There, a torch is shone through the shell to determine the egg's fertility and the chick's developmental stage. This is known as candling. You, um, you know when you're in the middle of the incubation season when you start dreaming eggs? That's moving. Is that a little shimmy? I think that's the older one. Yeah. Oh, that's yes, just, just clearly, just clearly saw a good, good wiggle there. Yes. Yes. So a little roll to the left and then back to the right, and they're on this sort of non-slip matting with a little bit of cushioning yes. to <laughs> keep, keep them off the hard desk. But, uh, um, from about uh, day 45 onwards, you can see a little bit of movement, but as they get to the later stage, they actually really start wobbling backwards and forwards. So uh, whilst um, Carmel's going to do the paperwork, I'll have a quick look just around the eggs to make sure... There's no obvious cracks. Your immediate impression, though? Oh, good eggs. He's wobbling away. That's wonderful. Uh, good eggs. A little bit on the dirty side. <laughs> <laughs> so you're holding you're holding the torch within you know three or four centimeters of the egg. Just with the candle a little further away. Sometimes you can see any um, sort of unusual irregularities in the shell, but uh, we'll candle quite closely next. Can we have those lights off? You ready? Mm -hmm. Okay, so pitch black now, apart from the, the candling. So what I'm just looking for is how nice and clear and crisp that air cell line is, and the colour of the contents of the egg, which you can see are quite dense and dark, which mm. means late stage development. And obviously the, the colour that comes back for it from the inside is, is, is red, but that's, I guess, through the effect of the, the light going through the, the shell. The vessels, yeah. Oh, okay, right. And, uh, and a little bit of waste there. Can you see that dark shadowing there? Yes. That's a little bit of waste. That's metabolic waste. As, it, as the embryo develops, it produces the waste and has to deposit it, so it deposits away from where the actual chick is. It's almost a veterinary facility, with lots of note-taking underway. My name's Carmel Richardson, and I'm one of the kiwi keepers here. And, um, uh, and there's a lot of record keeping as well as kiwi keeping. Oh yes, every chick that goes from here has got quite a thick file that goes with it, and we yeah, start taking data from the time they arrive right through the incubation hatch, and yeah, right to the time, the day they leave us, basically. And in this room, in the preparation room, we'll weigh them, and Claire's already candled them to get an idea of the um, development. Claire's just preparing the um, wash, they'll both get washed, 
What's the reason for that? If they're not overly dirty, given that they'd be born and naturally, you know, in a in a muddy hole, <laughs> what's the reason for giving the eggs a wash? Eggshell is porous, and because they're sitting in a burrow, they're in contact with soil and vegetation, and they can get bacteria in the pores. That was 32, and it went in at 10 past. The eggs are then quickly but very carefully washed to remove any bacteria. It's really difficult. You've got to try and avoid rubbing the dirt into the pores. That's because bacteria are a major cause of kiwi egg mortality. The thing is, when we're at the peak of the incubation period, we've got over 30 eggs in there, and we just have to avoid any type of bacterial infection because we would wipe out the whole lot. Sometimes maybe we're a little pedantic, but I think it's important. Uh, it's too precious a cargo to make mistakes. Mm. So now they've been washed, as far as, you know, we are concerned, uh, the bacteria from the field have been wiped off it. We can take the gloves off. Like they go all dressed up and all their gear to go in there. Oh yes, the hair, hair nets are going on. <laughs> I'm not able to enter the incubation room for hygiene reasons. Like uh, food, they, food scientists. Yeah. Well, that's right. And, um, so I mean, I don't think you could have better care than this for our eggs. Instead, Tansy, Mike, and I move around to watch from a side window. This is the first time I've actually seen two of our eggs come in, so yeah, it's quite exciting for me, really. I've lived in Fakatani for almost three years now and we're so spoiled to have Fakatani uh, kiwi wandering around in a piece of bush on our back doorsteps and it just was really brought home to me last night um, camping in the bush waiting for this bird to um, go get its dinner and um, help with this process of uh, increasing our numbers throughout the region. Every little bit we can do is, is a good thing. Then it's through to the brooder room and we can see an artificial diet for the kiwi chicks being prepared by a former zookeeper, John Pickard. It's based on ox heart and it's been used throughout New Zealand in zoos and places like this for 30 years. Um, it's minced ox heart mixed with cat biscuits which are soaked so they're soft and then a little bit of vegetables added to that. And they seem to thrive on it? Yeah, they take, sometimes they take a little while of adjusting to it, but yeah, they thrive. I mean, they start on nothing, almost, you know, about 10 grams when we're first introducing them in, and it increases, and it's, it's monitored by demand, by how much they consume. Once the chicks hatch, there's a gourmet menu ready and waiting for them, bolstered with rolled oats, wheat germ, and tiny stones to aid digestion. It all sounds great. Claire Travers says it's a far from easy road to travel. In the early days it was purely the company and we are, the major shareholders are Natahu, uh, but it, it became so successful almost it, we were shooting ourselves in the foot and that we couldn't increase. So um, that's why we really had to form a trust uh, to start generating some or outside funding. We have five full-time workers, and they're all very professional people. And, uh, and then when you're keeping a chick on the side for six months, you have food and vet bills. Um, it does start getting very expensive. Uh, I mean, at the peak of the season, we had 80-odd uh, birds on site, 
and feeding maybe your birds takes a phenomenal amount of time. So we're looking at anything from sort of, uh, depending on the length of time that a, a bird stays with us, anything from 2000 to $3,000 um, for the duration of the stay. All right then. Okay, good. Okay. Good. good to meet you too. Yeah. See you. See you. So Townsie and Mike have begun the long drive back to Fakatani. It's been a sleepless night for them, but hopefully a rewarding one. The eggs now safely in the incubators here, the work just beginning at Rainbow Springs. And visits just like this one will become increasingly common as uh, the breeding season reaches its peak and Operation Nest Egg teams around the country go into overdrive. At Kiwi Encounter, Stuart Brown, the general manager of Naitahu Tourism North Island, admits he is just as much the caretaker of a legacy as he is the boss of a business. Rainbow Springs turned 75 years old this month, with Kiwi hatching beginning in a small shed on site in 1995. Twelve years later, the purpose-built hatchery and nursery facility has hatched its 500th egg and is leading the nation's research on kiwi diseases and rearing techniques. Well, we've had a fantastic uh, year for a whole whole bunch of reasons. I mean, the 500th um, chick was just part of that. Um, but we've got bigger aspirations for the future. Yeah, we certainly could, will continue to, um, to raise and hatch as, as many kiwis as we possibly can for the survival of that species. And we've got some other aspirations around some other endangered species as well in the near future quite risky I would imagine at the outset all the, all the huge costs that have to be gone to setting something like this up and then crossing your fingers and, and hoping it's going to come good. Um, I, I think that's right but I, I mean we've also been very fortunate that we've had such strong support from our shareholders in the Tahu and I mean they have very good and very strong um, environmental um, values themselves and I really think this is um, you know, a great thing they're doing willing to commit a lot of capital investment in the North Island in particular. And you must have some pride in the level of husbandry you've managed to achieve here? Um, very much so. Um, we have a great team, um, Claire Travers, um, who, who's actually um, you know, was an ex-dairy farmer, has just done a tremendous job at learning. Uh, she's very passionate, committed, even to the extent that you know they'll, they'll turn up here at, at midnight and, and assist with a chick egg, um, hatching, or even on the odd occasion uh, the odd sleeping bag's been in there. So um, they're just a tremendously dedicated bunch of people. It's understandably easy to feel positive when you hear about such success stories and such inspirational teamwork. But let's not forget all six species of kiwi and all 11 varieties within them have been dying out and all are at risk of extinction. For an explanation, I've come to Hamilton to meet Dr. Avi Holzapfel, the Department of Conservation's Kiwi Recovery Group leader. If we want to answer your question in general terms, it's very difficult to do because some of them are still very numerous but are declining rapidly, like the North Island brown kiwi. Some of them are in incredibly low numbers, therefore at risk alone by their small population size where you have only hundreds of birds. But that population, those populations may now be stable and slightly increasing. So there's a spectrum of issues, a spectrum of um, solutions, and... Um, if you want to put this into a single sentence, um, you can't. Now, in terms of the mixed messages that we therefore seem to get, sometimes we're hearing about individual success stories, mm. even with um, one particular 
offshore island or, or one particular reserve or one particular subspecies but but overall the picture's not too rosy so what's the what's the answer there there is no doubt that kiwi as a group face serious threats have faced them for a long time and that if we don't maintain or increase our recovery effort there is a high chance that we could lose some species forever and very quickly so so the situation overall is critical. It is important to stick to facts when you talk about solutions or issues. Um, and there are successes that we can take heart in. So it is not all um, throwing the hands in the air and saying we can't do anything about it. We can do quite a lot and we are doing quite a lot. It's 16 years since the Bank of New Zealand got involved, so I'm in Auckland to find out what they've been funding the executive director of BNZ's Save the Kiwi Trust, Michelle Impey, says they began by paying for basic doc research in 1991. At that time, we didn't know the answers to a lot of questions, where Kiwi lived, how many there were. We knew they were disappearing, but we didn't know what the threats were or why they were. After those initial probably three years, we got answers to a lot of those questions. So in 1994, what is now probably the flagship program under the BNZ Save the Kiwi banner is Operation Nest Egg. And that's when that program was born. It was out of research that was done. So that was the beginning of the relationship was research. We developed our flagship program, BNZ Operation Nest Egg, um, and a lot of other aspects of saving Kiwi. How much is the trust putting in now? What are they actually doing? They'll cover a variety of things. So we invest in um, management, so actual field workers that are out there doing the work, so similar to Tansy that you would have been in the field work with, to help cover the monitoring of birds, to cover predator control, um, pest control, that sort of thing. We also invest in research. So there's a good example of a project that we're funding via Massey University to develop a near natural diet for captive kiwi. So we're very involved financially, if you will, with the funding grants to help cover that. But it's more than grants? It's more than grants, and that's a key distinction that we make with our trust, is that we provide a lot of expertise and tools and resources that help supplement the work that people are doing. And I think the one thing, the nature of Kiwi work, is that quite often it's in isolated, somewhat remote regions. You get all these little pockets of really passionate people who are working very hard in their little patch, and what we do as a trust is help provide kind of a national picture. So we, we position ourselves as the national umbrella organization under which all these people fall. So BNZ Save the Kiwi, we provide um, resources. So there's collateral, there's guidebooks. We're working on a training DVD right now that people can use to help with you know, predator control and controlling domestic animals and understanding forestry. So it's really about helping them get on with doing their job. The kia was the native species making all the noise at Rainbow Springs on my most recent visit for the 75th anniversary celebrations. But the Kiwi House had the people of Rotorua enraptured, including their MP and the new Minister for Conservation, Steve Chadwick. It's only those that get involved that realise how vulnerable the species actually is and the variance around the country, quite a difference between the North Island and the South Island. And I have to admit that it's really only since I've been the Minister and looked at the biodiversity strategy that I'm now custodian of as the Minister that I realise how targeted our programmes have to be to actually help with the recovery of the Kiwi. 
I think we've always known the Kiwi as New Zealanders as a a bit of Kiwiana really and we've never actually looked at the bird behind the symbol and now I'm learning about that bird behind the symbol. Conservation's competing with so many other things from the government purse. Mm. How difficult to strike the balance on, on how much is spent on this particular area? Well once we've got the science and you mentioned the science, once we know about the vulnerability of the species and also the population around the country we can start to get into some very targeted approaches in government. And in 2000, once we got the evidence, we saw that we needed to set up some sanctuaries. And so we set up five sanctuaries and put $10 million each year in towards the development of those sanctuaries. And we're seeing some big gains, especially in the North Island, which are showing us that targeted input from our department actually alongside all the work that councils do and regional councils do, and there's over 60 voluntary groups in the country working on this, we are starting to make a difference, and that's getting us all really excited. Steve Chadwick says DOC's funding has increased by 67% in the past eight years, with $140 million a year now being spent on pest and rodent control as part of a biodiversity strategy. But for the South Island, repeated stoat plagues continue to account for thousands of chick deaths, and unrestrained dogs are wiping out breeding adults in the wild, particularly in Northland. Operation Nest Egg can now reliably produce more than 100 juvenile kiwi a year from captive rearing institutions like Rainbow Springs. But it's estimated the total population of the most numerous kiwi, the North Island Brown, is halving every 10 to 15 years, and fewer than 78,000 birds now remain across the 11 separate genetic types. So for husbandry manager Claire Travers and dock ranger Tansy Bliss, their efforts are just borrowing time. I don't think uh, the whole concept of this intensive incubation and um, sort of protection of chicks is the ultimate answer to what's going on out there. Uh, I think we are an interim step and until uh, some process has been put into place that will control the predators uh, at a, a better rate, um, we're the only option. And uh, I think it's success in its own right but it's not the answer i wish we had the answer and and how would kiwi be faring without ONE? i don't think they'd be faring particularly well at all would they no mm. i mean the the big thing is that ONE gives us young birds out there on the ground and it's it just gives us a little bit of time to try and get yes yeah, some handle on the predators because most of the birds that um are there from before the predators. Yeah, they're, they're old birds, they could be 30 or 40 years old now, and they're probably, some of them are probably in their last years of, of laying. So um, we could have a dramatic drop of when those older birds start dying. Unless we've got some young ones coming through to replace them, we could lose our populations really, really quickly. And that's what we're worried about.